Welcome to the Data Able Podcast, where Dave Mathias and Matt Jesser dive into data. Each week, they cover the culture, knowledge, and practices that successful organizations, leaders, and individuals use to get value out of data. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Data Able. Today with us, we have Mitchell Gruer from, he's one of the founders of the Cargill Self-Service Analytics Team. And we've known Mitchell for a while, so it's great to sit down here and just chat a little bit more and get him on the podcast because he's doing some really interesting things. He's an award-winning coach. He's responsible for the Cargill Self-Service Analytics Community and their education services. Now Mitchell is empowering Cargill employees with self-service skills and behaviors required and understanding for their data. So welcome to the show, Mitchell. Thanks, everyone. How are you doing? Doing great. And so we're going to keep this nice and loose. We're going to start out with a couple questions, you know, maybe like our little Rorschach test a little bit. So we're going to start out with the question we always ask everyone at the start is, what is your data superpower? Oh, man. Well, uh, it's super nerdy. Uh, I enjoy daydreaming about how to collect data about the most mundane of things. For example, last night I was doing the dishes and I was thinking about how many spoons we use. Our family uses a lot of spoons for some reason. And I wanted to know if we use more spoons in certain, depending on what we're cooking, if there's a different distribution of spoons in the dishwasher based on our meal selections. That's just one silly example of how I'm always thinking about how to collect data from everything in my life. And uh, so if you were a data viz, what would you be and why? This is the classic uh, data dating question, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Only this isn't a date, right? No, 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 no commitments here. (laughs) So uh, I I think I'd be a network diagram uh, because I really prioritize relationships. And and while people talk about how important it is to connect the dots, I think you have to collect them first in order to make those connections. So I like to think of myself kind of like a librarian where I maybe haven't read every book, but I like to know what books exist and how to find them, which I think is pretty useful in the age of Google. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, and I like the story behind it because, and we've, I don't think we've had anyone that's ever said network diagram before. So I I really like that. And, and the explanation behind it. Yeah. That is super valuable in today's connection age. I like being unique. Mitchell, on that note, other people who are unique out in the community that you really respect, who would be a data hero of yours? Yeah. I was thinking a lot about this question and I think I'm not going to go with any sort of celebrity in the data community. Instead, I'm going to say it's everyone that I see around me that's willing to overcome their fear and and be courageous enough to try to become a data person, even though they think I'm not technical or I'm not a data person, but they're willing to learn and change and figure out how to make data a part of their work and life. So all of the, I'll say the, the average people out there that are picking up, picking up data are my heroes. Awesome. We're all uh, natural learners, and in this analytic space, uh, we've we've got to learn a lot, right? There's always new things coming at us. Um, one of the new topics is really around storytelling and visualization. So, who would be an all-time favorite storyteller of yours? It could be a, an author. It could be a, a speaker. Yeah, I uh, I really enjoy reading uh, science fiction and fantasy books, and there's an author, a Canadian author named Daniel Arnson. Uh, who writes, it it seems like a book every month. Uh, And he figures out how to, despite his incredible pace of writing, uh, create like high quality, entertaining, energizing narratives across, literally across space and time 
uh, with dozens of characters, each one having pretty incredible depth. Uh, and then he weaves it all together, all from their different perspectives. Uh, so I really appreciate uh, his work and his storytelling. And there's plenty of books to keep you occupied. Excellent choice. Uh, and I've not read him before, so I'm going to have to try that one out. Thanks for the uh, recommendation there. You know, you're talking about storytelling being an undervalued skill, but what other uh, data trait or skill do you think is most undervalued in the industry today, Mitchell? Can I say two? Uh, go for it. So I think uh, the, the first one is, is I hear a lot of people in industry talking about uh, asking good questions or avoiding bias, but I really uh, rarely hear enough emphasis on hypothesis forming uh, and especially like a null hypothesis. Because it's a lot easier to prove, you know, for example, that swans aren't white by finding a single black swan than it is to prove all swans are white by just observing white swans, right? Uh, the second one I would say is uh, the willingness to chase down anomalies. Oftentimes, you know, when I was doing data analysis, I would see people focus on telling a specific story. And then oftentimes they miss outliers or anomalies in their data. And I think chasing down those unusual circumstances or behaviors or, or anomalies in your data is what really makes for a great and successful analyst. Excellent. Well, that uh, both those things uh, really are important. So out of those two things, which do you, do you think is more important? I'm going to ask you to rate those two. I think uh, the hypothesis comes first, typically. So I would say start, starting with a... a a really well-formed question that helps you eliminate that bias is critical. So can I ask you one more question before we start getting into you a little bit more on what you're doing there? And what is the data blog or podcast or even a book that you might be out there on the data side that you would recommend to somebody that's uh, wanting to get more into the space or wanting to advance in their sp this space? Yeah, I have an answer, but I did want to say as well that uh, actually in the age of you know Twitter and LinkedIn and Google Now, the way my technology is set up, most of the time I don't pay attention to what I'm reading. I just get recommended uh, articles and I just read them. So I don't typically follow one or two consistent blogs. I just read whatever's on my feed. But uh, the one that I really has stuck with me is actually Dear Data uh, by Georgia Lupi and Stephanie Pozovic. Uh, and so they actually were strangers and they wrote postcards with hand-drawn data visualizations uh, to each other across the Atlantic, and and they tried to see if they could become friends through only getting to know each other from data visualizations on postcards. It's a super cool project because uh, so often we think of, again, data visualization as a very technical or uh, you know, process where they they just simplified it down to its core elements of, of telling stories with data hand-drawn and communicated about their lives to each other. Did they have any postcards about spoons? I don't. I don't think I saw one about spoons, but I can. I can maybe add that to the recommendations for a future blog. There you go. All right. Well, let's get into a, a bit more of a formal introduction for you, Mitchell. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and where you're at. Yeah. So I was uh, raised in Michigan, and I moved to the Twin Cities in Minnesota for uh, to actually work at Cargill about five years ago now. I graduated with a degree from Grand Valley State University, uh, a bachelor's of business administration with a focus in management information systems. And that school was really primarily a, an SAP school. 
So I learned about ERP systems and business process, uh, but got a chance to play with data visualization a little bit during college. I ended up uh, starting at Cargill as a business analyst, became a data analyst, uh, and then now I, I lead the coaching and education team for self-service analytics, teaching people how to use data. So I've kind of come full circle from doing it to, to teaching people how to do it. And uh, I live in Mound, Minnesota with my wife and seven-month-old son. Like I said, I enjoy reading military science fiction, love video games, love movies. Uh, I'm excited to go to the lake this summer. I'm finally near the lake. So, you know, you, you've kind of been around the data space your entire career. Can you, uh, can you pinpoint a moment or, uh, or like a project that really got you passionate about the data side of the world? I think I wasn't really passionate around the data side of the world truly until I was able to see the value that it provided. So I was always a little bit of a nerd and I enjoyed visualizations probably more than maybe doing data warehousing uh, or, or configuration in SAP. But it wasn't until I, I really started building my first visualizations in Tableau software that uh, I started to really get excited about it because I saw the potential. We had uh, largely an Excel-driven organization at the time and to see the ability to interact and tell different stories and see different outcomes, even with a feature that's now as you know, simple as, as dashboard actions, allowed us to, to uncover like incredible amounts of insight at an un, unprecedented pace. Uh, and so seeing that, and then furthermore, I saw the potential to teach that. So when I was a data analyst, uh, I had all the tool skills and the technical knowledge, but I completely lacked the business context. And to be able to go and teach the technical skills or the, the tool skills to someone who had the business context was incredible. Yeah. So um, just for context, before we jump into some of the more specifics of what you do at Cargill, um, I think most folks in the Twin Cities are very familiar with Cargill, but uh, maybe outside of the Twin Cities, a little less so. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what Cargill is and, uh, and where you sit organizationally? Yeah, so Cargill is, I think we're a 153-year-old now agriculture company, privately owned. Historically, we've focused on food and nutrition, but now we're, there's also a huge emphasis on uh, being a digital company and being a technology company as well as a uh, food and nutrition company. So you're going through a pretty massive like digital transformation right now, uh, which is tough for any organization, but especially one uh, as old and as established as Cargill. Yeah, and in the agriculture space too. So speaking of that, you know, you're going through that digital transformation, but what are the biggest issues that you're seeing that needs to be solved for whether it's cargo or whether it's uh, more broadly in, in the space of data in the next few years? What are, what are sort of the next big issue? I would say uh, people making informed decisions around what, what they're investing in. So I mean that both in terms of time and money. Uh, we're surrounded by so much buzz in this space right now, which is super exciting because there's awareness being generated. People are talking about data, but at the same time, there's a lot of, of hype to sift through. Uh, and so I think starting to, to break down what all that hype is and what it means and what data can actually be for your business 
uh, is critical. I think data is still kind of an abstract term for most people. Uh, and I think a good way to start doing that is getting people to care about their own data. Uh, so there's so much data in our personal lives about spoons or anything else. Uh, in addition to, to all the data that we see in the news between our social media profiles and bank accounts, I think it's critical that you care about your own data. And if you take that passion about your own data into your work, we'll start breaking down that buzz and remove this abstract nature of, of data. That makes a lot of sense. And and you did mention one of the terms that's thrown around a lot, but you know, it's a term that I know Matt and I use a lot too, is, is that data informed so that, you know, what does a data informed organization look like, or what does a data informed person even look like to you? Yeah. Cargo, we try to keep it simple. And I say uh, it's people telling stories with data. And I think about that as, you know, when you see people having a conversation or sending emails or making decisions, the data is involved uh, in that process. You got a new person that's coming to the organization. Let's say they're coming right out of college or maybe they're a couple years out, um, but they haven't been exposed uh, to data. They, you know, they, they don't feel that comfortable with it. How do you go? What's the process that you start somebody out to, to start becoming data informed? Well, this is a good one because this is what I do on a daily basis, not just people out of college, but there are all sorts of people uh, that have never really thought about or been exposed to data before. And so our strategy is to uh, make it simple, make it fun, and make it relevant. So make sure uh, that we're not trying to overcomplicate the problem. And by that, I mean the question we're asking or how we're going to answer it. Can we make it fun? Uh, so one thing we do at Cargill is introduce a little bit of competition into the mix. We do a, a two-month bring-your-own-data visualization challenge. Uh, and that's a great way to, to keep it simple and make it fun and make it relevant. Uh, again, I mentioned that people get to bring their own data to our, to our challenge, our competition. And, and so by people being able to solve problems that they already had in their job, that they were already working on, uh, make sure that it's, it's relevant to their, to their position. And so you have to lower the cost of curiosity and, and make people want to change. I think all too often we emphasize, uh, the top down, you must learn this, or this must be a part of your role. But we found more success uh, getting people excited to change as opposed to trying to force them. That's a really interesting question. <clears throat> Something that my feed has been, uh, my LinkedIn feed has been uh, debating quite a bit, and I'm sure you've been seeing some of the posts back and forth, but this concept of top-down transformation culture change versus bottoms-up culture transformation change. You know, it sounds like you're subscribing to kind of this bottom bottoms-up, like grassroots effort. Do you feel like the, the top is necessary as well? Uh, I think we've talked about this before over root beers, but yes, definitely. I think they're they're both critical. For example, at Cargill, I don't think we would have gotten uh, the conversation started as effectively as we did, nor would we have financial support to go execute on it if we did not have a core capability of digitalization analytics defined at the most senior levels, uh, pervasive throughout the company. Uh, so it, it laid the foundation for the grassroots uh, movement to work. But after you have that top-down, for example, as opposed to forcing everyone in the organization to define a data-related goal on their development plan, again, if you get if you get people excited and they want that and they're asking for it, I think you're more successful. 
I mean, Cargill's a Cargill's a large company, right? Um, do you anticipate specializations within data, so like data science and and uh, and more like BI people, or do you really expect everyone in your organization to be capable of using data? Yeah, I definitely think it's a spectrum. So we we think of different uh, activities that people need to do, and we typically break it apart into into four main activities, and we have about 155,000 employees worldwide in, in dozens of different countries, 70 some different businesses. So definitely I don't expect all of those people globally to be doing data or analytics, but the four main activities that I think every organization needs to have a successful analytics capability are storytelling or the artists, like we talked before, the people that can make really beautiful data visualizations, communicate those insights and inspire action. We think about the subject matter experts. So you always need the people who can provide context. A lot of times those are referred to as the, the business people. Then we think about engineers. So the ability to get data from A to B. This is probably the most underrepresented group of people at Cargill. Uh, typically the work they do isn't, isn't seen or uh, necessarily noticed. So these are the people that can kind of speak both uh, the business and the technical, getting the data out from wherever it is in the source system to help answer the question and get it in a place where it's ready to be analyzed. And then we think of the, the analysts and the modelers. So the people that can, can really take the data once it's in maybe a warehouse or a lake and start to transform it into a, a view that's ready to be uh, consumed by the business. And so the, the modeler here uh, is, is an absolutely critical job that we see quite often done in isolation at Cargill, at least, without the engineer. Uh, and they really struggle sometimes to get the data sustainably and source it uh, without proper data pipelines. So you're talking about, you know, different roles across the organization where people are each playing a role with data. There's this term that's thrown around a lot now around data literacy or data fluency that's being, you know, thrown out there. Uh, what does that term mean to you? And do you use it at Cargill? And, and how does it resonate? So, so the four roles that I mentioned uh, aren't necessarily all one person or uh, each one is its own person. I think that there can be, again, a spectrum where you may have two of the roles together. Uh, and so when I think around uh, data literacy, I think about, again, the ability to tell stories with data, have conversations around data. And I do think that the ability to communicate using data is critical and needs to be pervasive throughout the organization. So while not everyone will be an engineer uh, or a subject matter expert or an analyst or an artist, I would still expect that everyone can communicate with data. And so that includes, again, both being able to tell stories with data, but also understand what's being told to you using data. How have you seen, I mean, you've been a cargo a number of years now, but where have you seen it progress over the last couple of years? And where do you hope that a couple of years from now it'll be on this spectrum as, as, as the organization's maturing? And because I think you, your organization's probably for the size of organization it is, it's, it's more advanced than, than many um, in, in this process. I think we're, we have an incredible amount of awareness built. People are excited and are talking about data. I think we're having a, a big part of the organization, uh, that are making really great decisions based off data. They're imagining new 
uh, digital data products uh, and, and really changing the face of Cargill's business and how we run. Uh, when you think about an agriculture business, uh, typically a lot of what we do is is low margin. And so the ability at, at our massive size and scale to use data to optimize our outcomes uh, is, is truly incredible. Uh, so the one thing that I think we can continue to improve on uh, is, like I mentioned early on, forming good questions to reduce that bias. So I think a lot of times we have very experienced people with with hunches about where we need to go. And sometimes we end up looking, we fall into the trap of looking for data to support our conclusion as opposed to exploring what's what's actually happening. So Mitchell, um, you know, a question I have for you about kind of the, the execution of this vision that you have and that your leadership has, uh, clearly training is a part of that, right? I mean, you have to teach uh, folks, how to form hypotheses, uh, how to get access to data. What other things are you thinking about outside of education to help drive this transformation towards a like a, a data informed organization? Yeah, well, I want to be clear too. Like we have a difference between training and education. Training for us is is how specifically to use the tools. But we find much of our focus ends up being on the holistic education, which includes uh, the behaviors you need to be successful at data analysis, not just uh, the tool skills. So for example, this generating hypotheses or asking powerful questions, uh, even sometimes simple things like what to do when you get an error message. Well, have you tried copying it in Google uh, and searching it? You know, building that confidence so people know what to do. Uh, and, and probably one of my favorite topics to preach on is, is that data analysis is not linear. You don't always get the data, model the data, visualize the data, and share the outcome. A lot of times you have to jump back and forth throughout that process. So we teach behaviors as much as we teach uh, probably the tool skills, if not more, partially because I'm not sure I can teach everyone every tool skill they need to know. Uh, and so I need to teach them how to feel comfortable and confident learning new things in addition to some of the basics. I think holistically, uh, the biggest thing that we need to succeed outside of training and education is community. So at a company of 150,000 people, there's sometimes people doing the same thing. Oftentimes there's people doing the same thing. Uh, there's sometimes, again, one, one answer that we can apply across the company. We have, uh, Sometimes they're referred to as data swamps. So having the same data appear over and over throughout the company with maybe different transformations and different calculations. And so the ability to break some of that down using a community uh, as opposed to uh, maybe trying to mandate it with a, a data catalog or data stewards, we found that by using a community, again, we have more authentic, genuine participation. People are helping each other skill up. Uh, and that we start to break down some of those knowledge silos. Uh, and I imagine like today, if you go to your, your company and ask someone an Excel question, there isn't maybe a training or an education program around Excel. You learn from Google, you, you ask your colleagues for help, uh, and, and that's how the knowledge is transferred. So I think that's how data literacy will, will live on in Cargill. It's kind of a train the trainer program almost, right? It becomes bigger than just your team because your, your team is pretty small, right? 
yeah, we only have eight people today. And I think it will ha we have to get, grow exponentially to succeed. And I don't, I don't even think it's train the trainer. It's like train, train everyone and everyone trains everyone else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you certainly have, and, and different people are going to, you know, take to certain aspects of data literacy or, or this, this data informed organization. Like some people hypothesis testing, it might just, or, or data visualization or things like that, um, where they are going to be passionate and they're going to sort of lead the charge of helping others there. So, you know, it's finding, building that community, but also empowering that community. And what are some ways that uh, from an empowerment, because a lot of times, you know, companies want to create communities, they have this idea, and there's always that concern of how much control do you have over the community versus you sort of, you know, let them take it. Tell me more about like building that community and, and making it sustaining. You know, how, how do you go about that to succeed? And maybe you're, you're you know, what would you be trying next? Because I, I think it's probably something that you're probably always doing to try to empower that community. The first thing we did was a little bit bold. Uh, we stopped answering emails or tickets. We closed our IT ticket queue uh, and, and pushed all interaction to the community. So any announcements we were going to make about our organization or tools took place on Yammer, which is our internal social media channel. Uh, and any questions that people asked, we asked them to ask on Yammer. If people pinged us on Skype or instant messaged us, we asked them to take it to Yammer. So trying to make all of these interactions happen publicly uh, was the first step that we took. And we found to be pretty successful with that. Uh, the next thing we had to do was actually back off a little bit. And so it started, Yammer started to be a place where people would tag my team in specific. They'd say, at Mitchell, how do I build this you know, bar chart? And I'd say, well, this, this channel is actually about a community. It's not just about at Mitchell. I'm going to step back for a minute and, and see if someone else can help answer your question. And, and what we found is the champions, when we started waiting 24 hours to respond to questions, champions started popping up and answering them before us. And oftentimes they'd answer them better than us because I don't know how to build every viz in Tableau and I don't know how to connect to every data source in Cargill or build every calculation. And so all these experts from the community started jumping in when we stepped back a little bit. So we still make sure people get help, but at our own pace. So you, you had to like f almost force the behavior change to happen before uh, before it took off. Yeah, we, we, we pushed it in the right direction, I'd say. But I think the, the next thing we're considering is uh, there's a big difference, I think, between asking for help and support. And so we need to break those out uh, because right now they're all taking place on Yammer. Like the server being down or receiving an error while trying to connect to a new data source is a different, fundamentally different type of problem than how do I build this calculation or how do I tell this story or build this bar chart? And so separating out the work that the community can do from the work that my team needs to do, I think will be the next step to growing the community. So Mitchell, you mentioned this term uh, champions. Talk a little bit about your thoughts on champions within a community. What, is, what does a champion look like and how do you build one? I think uh, for us, champion isn't super well-defined. We thought about getting serious about defining it and building qualifications. For example, helping X number of people and telling X number of stories with data publicly, things like that. But we ended up, uh, we haven't prioritized that yet, at least. Uh, so for us, champions are just uh, typically knowledgeable, enthusiastic people that participate in 
our community. And as for your question about how we go about building them, we actually decided not to. And for a very specific reason is every time we train a champion, they'd get promoted or they'd get a new job or get hired into some other company. And so we realized that while champions are critical to your success, they're not, we don't want to create the superheroes with capes. We want to create analytics capabilities, like a network of champions and an, an entire organization that can do data analytics and not just single champions. Uh, so we put the emphasis on these, I mentioned those four roles, these capabilities within an organization as opposed to just single champions. Now, one of the things, though, you're certainly not trying to just, you know, train up one champion, but is there anything that you're doing uh, sort of, because, I mean, oftentimes what you're asking people to do and part of the community, I mean, or the, what you're hoping they'll do is they'll do above and beyond, right? They're helping somebody else. They're, you know, it's not necessarily in their job description uh, to do that, but they're taking that on and, you know, there's intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. Is there anything that you're doing to sort of recognize uh, those individuals or do anything from a motivation perspective so that they'll contribute more to the community? Yeah, we do have a, a slight amount of gamification. So we use the, uh, the Yammer API to pull out who the most liked posts are and the most popular threads. And we have three categories of, of awards that we give out each month in each community. So we have a community for each tool and then an overall self-service analytics community. And so we give out 12 of those, uh, quote, awards every uh, every month. But the recognition is just a public post thanking them for their contributions and a note to their manager. So we, again, don't go, uh, I think, over the top on on rewarding or recognizing people. We just try to do the, the kind of common courtesy when it comes to recognition, which is thanking people. I find oftentimes the champions end up being the people that uh, get a ton of fulfillment out of helping people anyway. Uh, so they're already getting recognized every time they solve a problem and get a like. I think you're exactly right. And I, you know, and, and I know I certainly was that way when, you know, you get that recognition, you feel good about it. And, you know, that note to the manager, that's always great. So um, I think you're, you're spot on. So it's, uh, you know, some people are like, oh, well, where's the gift card? Well, people that are motivated that way are, are probably not the people that you're going to have as your champions anyways. Um, so yeah, we want this to we want this to live on without us. So, if we were giving out a gift card every time someone posts, we we wouldn't be able to sustain that after we're gone. Exactly. Well, you have all the agriculture, right? So you give out a your your give out a cut of meat or uh, give out a you know. Here's some um, corn. There we go. What what keeps you up at night, Mitchell? At this point, um, you know you you've done a lot with trying to build this community up at Cargill. You guys made a lot of progress, but what's the thing that sort of concerns you and keeps you up at night? Aside from my seven-month-old son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I figured that might be one of the answers, but yeah, outside from that. <laughs> I think uh, probably data accessibility, which isn't a problem that we're actively working on. Our team is mostly around empowering people to see and understand data teaching them the skills and behaviors and, and giving them the tools to do that. Uh, and I think the piece of the puzzle we're missing is helping people understand what their data is, where it is, and how to get it. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that the kind of the engineering skill set is uh, immature at Cargill. And, and I think that's what really keeps me up at night because at the end of the day, if you can't get your data, what good is everything I just taught you? It's not as useful. That is very, very true. So 
how what's the process of you know fixing that and and maturing that that step probably the first step is some focus i think oftentimes we solve this problem too too big too holistically uh, and we're focused on getting all of our data and getting it all in some big lake somewhere so that we can just once it's in our hadoop environment you know we'll have our data and we can answer our questions uh, and i think some focus and discipline around let's answer one small question uh, and just even maybe a slice of that question for one facility or one you know time period and once we answer that slice let's learn what worked and what didn't work uh, and then iterate on it so maybe that data is high quality and it's accessible and we can move it into our our data platform our hadoop environment our lake uh, maybe we need to go back and change people and process prior to really investing in that that migration and transformation of data uh, so i think really the, the big thing is focus and have like an outcome question driven approach as opposed to uh, these i see so often these huge projects across cargill to just move all of our data into the lake and that will solve our, our problems with finding or accessing data the dreaded data lakes and i'll tell you if security didn't exist before if you couldn't access your data before like moving it to lake doesn't solve that there still needs to we still need to create security in the new place right yeah and it's, it gets more complicated in, in that place because it's like yeah <laughs> So that's actually a really uh, good question, uh, Mitchell. So anytime you talk about a self-service approach to BI, I think most people tend to be on board with the idea. Um, the execution comes in in, in the right set of tools, uh, the right set of data stored in the right place. Uh, and then the biggest question is gonna be around governance control, uh, making sure that the right people have access to the right data and that they don't have access to PII or, or anything else. So, you know, from your standpoint, how, are, how do you think, how does Cargill think about data security and making sure that the right people have access to the right data? Yeah, so I'll answer how I think about it. I won't, I won't speak on behalf of Cargill for this one, but I'd say uh, we started out with uh, using the, the governance, the security controls that were in place on the data source level. Uh, and so we let those carry through into our tools. So if there was security existing originally, it would still exist in the self-service tools. And I personally, I, I remember this quote when I was first getting into self-service that I heard at uh, a Gartner conference, and it said something along the lines of self-service analytics isn't new, like Excel's been around for decades. Uh, so I think about that in a lot of ways, our tools are uh, easier to track and audit and secure than, for example, spreadsheets floating around via email. So that's that's probably the first thing I'll say is we haven't, uh, aside from some simple best practices of, for example, inheriting permissions and security, we haven't set up a ton of governance around self-service. Uh, the other piece of that's empowerment. So instead of, again, just all controls, which are necessary, we also think about how do we educate our people with security best practices and standards uh, and governance. And so that's that's one piece of the puzzle. I was thinking about how at, at Mini Analytics, I got a chance to speak about our data governance and someone from the audience had asked me the question, uh, how are you managing data governance? And my answer was pretty simple. It's that uh, 
In a lot of ways, we're not, but I have more people in the conversation. And so uh, historically, we had had one or two people in charge of setting data governance for all of Cargill, like a leadership team or a governance council. And they, they would like establish these rules and push people to comply. And, and now we have thousands of people that are interested in how to manage and secure their data. They're frustrated by the multiple sources of truth and want to streamline down into a single source of data. So it's become uh, more of a pull and less of a push to establish governance because our community wants it. They want to, to have quality accessible data. I think that speaks a lot to you know how you've built the demand for data rather than doing a build it and they will come mentality that we were talking about, right? Let's just dump all of our data in a data lake. You've really done the hard work to get people bought into the idea of using data. Um, and they're naturally going to mature through that and get to the point where governance is actually a good thing rather than a, a hindrance to their forward momentum. Definitely. So one thing you were talking about before, we were talking about that top-down and bottom-up approach. So where do you think you're at now with that balance of top-down and bottom-up? Is there sort of a good balance between those two at this point now with Cargill, or is there still shifting of, of where this effort is happening and support? I think there's actually a fantastic balance. Right now we're, we're in the midst of uh, hiring enterprise data leads. So for our core parts of Cargill, we have these new roles that kind of act as a chief data officer for that business. So they're establishing a, a data strategy and, and aligning that with the business strategy uh, in order to really figure out how that business wants to approach adding value with data. And then from the bottom up, like I mentioned, we've had thousands of people in, enthusiastic, excited about data, and they're pushing up the demand and influencing those strategies based on just what they need to do their job. So our community has grown over the last two years from approximately uh, 7,000 people up to about 30,000 today using these platforms in, in Cargill. So the, the, the push is, uh, is happening with the data strategies, but the pull is probably even greater uh, with the, the community telling the data leads what they need to do their job and be successful. That's really cool. I, I, it's been a little while since we've talked and had not realized you're doing that with the enterprise data leads. That's that's a really novel approach. So, and just for people, um, so they understand, Cargill. There's about fifty some or sixty some different business units that uh, make up Cargill. Yeah, probably closer to seventy. Yeah, different businesses. We fit into about four core enterprises, though. So Mitchell, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the future uh, that we're all staring at right now. So AI, machine learning, data science, they're all really big terms, right? And we're talking mostly about fairly low level stuff, right? We're getting people in the business on board with using data, getting data in their hands. They're not doing sophisticated regression analyses. Maybe, maybe a few of them are, but for the most part, they're just using data and telling stories. So where does AI machine learning and, and data science fit into this puzzle? I, th I think uh, computers still aren't very good at providing context. Uh, and I don't think they're very good yet at solving the engineering challenges uh, that I mentioned earlier, connecting data together. And so I think what AI and, and machine learning are great at are at repetitive tasks, at analyzing uh, large amounts of oftentimes pre-prepared data uh, and uncovering anomalies. But 
people still have to ask questions, uh, assign meaning, and, and take action off of that that insight. So it's really finding that balance between both the human and the machine, whether the machine is doing something basic or something fairly uh, complex. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think the last thing that I wanted to talk about with you, Mitchell, is uh, some of the work that you do in the Twin Cities community outside of your day job. So you are a part of the planning committee for the Twin Cities Tableau user group. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it is. Awesome. Talk a little bit about uh, your experience with that community and how uh, how you came to be uh, a part of that organization. The, jo- the joke is that uh, everyone on the steering committee eventually joins a consultancy. And so they wanted someone who still worked for uh, a, a company and not a consultancy. And so they had asked me to come in and, and join the steering committee. But really why I got involved was uh, the Tableau community is, is probably one of the most active uh, data communities that I've seen. And uh, it's not super uh, sales intensive or focused around just proliferating the use of the tool. It's really focused on on their mission, which is helping people see and understand data. And so it's a, a very welcoming community where people of all skill levels can come in and we can talk through tool challenges. We can talk through philosophical opinions about data. Uh, we can network and, and get better together. And so I, I really just enjoy being a part of that group and, and planning out the meetings. So, Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, for anyone who wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you can uh, always tweet at me, at mgruer, or you can uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. are probably the best ways. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Mitchell. It was really great to hear your story uh, on, on Cargill's digital transformation and data transformation. Uh, we look forward to talking more in the future. Thanks for having me. The Data Able Podcast is produced by Dave Mathias and Matt Jesser and made possible by Beyond the Data. At Beyond the Data, we are on a mission to help high-performing individuals successfully become champions for a more data-driven approach in their organizations. We believe that data science is only part of the equation. Getting value out of data requires building a culture that starts with you, is supported by executives, and trickles down to every facet of your organization. You can learn more about Beyond the Data and our approach at gobeyondthedata.com.